You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. This podcast is sponsored by Receptiva DX. Receptiva DX is a powerful test that can help detect inflammatory conditions on the uterine lining that might be preventing you from becoming pregnant or staying pregnant. If you've experienced implantation failure or multiple miscarriages, ask your doctor about Receptiva DX. Uterine inflammation, if found, can be treated, providing a new pathway to achieving a successful pregnancy. Receptivity DX, because the journey's worth it. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm Dr. Carrie Bedian from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas, and I am joined by my two sensational co-hosts, Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center. Hey, everybody. And Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello. How are you um, lovely vixens doing today? <laughs> this vixen's doing great. How about you, Carrie? <laughs> Nazi. <laughs> That, that first vixen said that she just went to a wine tasting party and I want to know <laughs> how this is done because I love having people over and uh, love wine. People good things, but I have a terrible record with wines. Like I am my, between my husband and I, I very rarely go wrong with food. I very consistently choose vinegar to drink. Uh, on, the vino. On, you need the vino. That's what I, was just about to, I was just about to say that. I learned about, is it A-U vino? A vino? The vino is what I, the there's v- an app called the vino, V-I-V-I-N-O. Yep. And you can type in or scan in a wine label, or you can take a picture yep. of a wine menu, like when you're at a restaurant and it, it will rate them. Um, and the score, I think, is from, I guess, zero one to or five. one to five. Yep. And my general rule is don't drink anything that's a four, less than a four. Yeah. Okay. And you will very rarely go wrong. Okay. Yeah. One of the one of the people there, I just learned about that at the wine tasting party last night. One of the people that brought wine talked about that and how he had these criteria that had to be graded between a four and a five. And it's it's normal people that not, it's not like people that are, you know, sommeliers or whatever. It's normal people that rate the wine and, and tell tell you if they like them. And his criteria too, he wants something like more than 30,000 people to have tasted the wine or something. Okay. So so you can also, um, so on the app, you can tailor make it. So say there's certain things that you particularly like or don't like, you can start rating for yourself. I don't do that, but I do um, look up wines and generally, like I said, four and above. And Yeah. So if I were to, for example, type it into the app store and pull up Vivino and there's Vivino and Vivino Buy the Right Wine and Vivino Wine Scanner and Vivino Apps, hypothetically, which one should I choose? It is the one that looks like that. Okay. Got it. Bright pink. Pinkish and red, pinkish and it has red. white grapes. Got it. Okay. Excellent. Thank you. Yeah, so, so this party that we go to every year, we our real estate agent, when we first moved to Nashville, invited us. I think it was like the first year we ever had the party. We've been going for almost 20 years now. And they had this delicious spread of food, which is wonderful. So you get there, you know, you get your wine, talk to everybody, get your food. And then we all sit down and each person has to bring a bottle of wine and kind of the deal is you have to have some story, some unique story about the wine, like 
oh, I was in, you know, the south of France and we drank this wine or, you know, usually my story's not that great because, you know, I don't really go to the south of France very often. But <laughs> what about year, what about I, the story? Like I was in this Costco aisle. And, yeah, well, uh, sometimes you get those. Sometimes it's just I thought the label was cool and it was funny. One person chose their wine because they're um, really kind of into green products and things that are. Um, I forgot what the terminology is, sustainable and all that kind yeah. of stuff. So everybody has their own criteria. My criteria was my son is in Syracuse, New York right now. And they have these wines up there called orange wines or skin contact wines. And they're special kind of white wine where they're fermented with a white grape. And apparently most white wines are not. So so anyway, but everybody kind of has their own story. And we usually start out with the whites and then go the way all the way through the reds. And everybody gets a little taste of the wine. So we get a little bit poured all the way around. Of course, we have crackers. Your glass? How many? How many rinse- people come? Uh, well, there's about fifteen or twenty of us, I guess. Probably. I mean, I'm sorry, fifteen or twenty couples, because we each brought each couple brought a bottle of wine. Wow, so it's a pretty good group. But yeah, we had those little cracker things, and if you don't like the wine, you know, they have a place where you can dump it and all that. Huh? Interesting. Do y'all start, uh, start from whites and move to red? Yes. Uh-huh. Does anybody That's bring bubbles? Do. Yeah, actually, last night somebody brought a Cava from Spain. It's sort of the the Spanish version. You know, you can't call it champagne unless it's from the Champagne region of France. Um, but it's yes. the Spanish version, Spanish of sparkling wine, Spanish sparkling wine. Yeah. So yeah, actually, somebody last night did bring that. So yeah. So and there was somebody there from Toronto, and they brought some wine that won something in some Toronto, you know, wine fair wine or festival. something. So, yeah, Neat. so it's fun. That's it's cool. Fun. So if you're splitting between like thirty people, that means everybody gets like two sips, and then. Well, trust me, Carrie. You no, know, you get plenty of wine. I mean, usually after about the fifth round around, I'm like, I, I mean, I'm I, I'm not a huge wine drinker anyway. But like, there was one wine. It was Josh Reserve, and it it was it was a red wine. It was a cab, but it was um, aged in bourbon barrels. Ooh. So it was really kind of cool. It had a little bit of a bourbony kind of kick to it. So I, I tried that one, but. I usually, after about the fourth or fifth wine that goes around, I'm like, eh, I'll just pick and choose the ones I really, really want to taste. I mean, I love wine, but even when I go on wine tours, like on a, like a wine bus, I can only do like three places because my tolerance is so Oh, I'm, well, me too. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but yeah, no, it's, it's, believe me, everybody has plenty of wine and there's wine left over at the very end too, if you want to drink more after all that. That's, That's funny. Cool. Leave yeah, it to the Nashville fun. girls to pick the wine in bourbon barrels. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have a friend that works in a in a bourbon distillery, so that's or in a, a, a whiskey distillery, and we just kind of gone through that. So it made me more interested in the bourbon barrels. So it was fun. That's awesome. So now our patients who are very selective about when they do or not drink, do or do not drink alcohol as they're going through this fertility process. Now you know how to make uh, better quality choices. Exactly. There you go. Somewhat, gonna... somewhat dubious topic for a fertility podcast, but I am here for it. <laughs> All right. What questions do we have today, Susan? Okay. So our first one is, I just watched your latest podcast about the female anatomy. I was very frustrated because I ran into a rare problem that I hope you can talk about. I, for some reason, have only one ovary on the right and she's never had surgery. When I had an mm. HSG, it showed the dye going through the right fallopian tube and what I thought was a blocked left one. I don't think I have a left one. Have you ever heard of this? It's hard to research. Please help. Oh, sure. Yes, absolutely. We've heard of that. In fact, it probably goes along with the uterine malformation too, if I had to guess, or could go along with the uterine malformation. Depends on what the uterus looks like. She So she had an HSG, she said? She had an HSG, has a right tube, does not think... Um, Hold on. 
and she has a right ovary, but can't see the left ovary um, and might have a blocked left tube. I'm sure if she has a left tube. Well, I mean, the could the tube could be blocked or it could be part of the uterine malformation. She could have a non-communicating horn or she could have just a unicornic uterus. Um, probably it's definitely worth getting an ultrasound to look and make sure there's not something else over there. Just had a patient like this not that long ago who, when you looked at her HSG film, it clearly looked like it was not a normally shaped uterus. So your doctor probably would have picked up on it if they looked at it. Um, or that radiologist should have, but it wasn't a normally shaped uterus and she only had one tube. And when we looked at her ultrasound, she actually had um, a non-communicating horn where she had a piece of the uterus that never had attached to the to the other side of the uterus or what would have been the uterus. Um, or it could truly be just a blocked tube either way, uh, but definitely worth looking into that. It is a little unusual to be missing just for our listeners. Um, yeah. Just because you may have a malformed uterus and missing a tube that usually doesn't usually you still have two ovaries and as the left ovary is usually the hardest one to see and find it might be worth another ultrasound <laughs> well and, and the and the other thing good point about that susan yeah right so so sometimes if you have a non-communicating horn sometimes that one ovary is really high up in the pelvis mm-hmm. so it looks like you don't have, you don't an have ovary one there but you actually do because you you actually do if they look if somebody looks abdominally. So sometimes the one ovary can be really high, and, and so therefore when we're looking vaginally with the vaginal probe, it looks like you don't have an ovary, but really it's up high in the pelvis. So I think uh, a couple of additional thoughts on this is one is there may be of like maybe have been some sort of torsion event when she was really young because to be missing both a tube and an ovary those come from different embryologic structures. Right. That's why it's unusual. Yeah, and so it's weird to be missing one. It's it's weird to be missing both of them unless it was a surgical missing both of them. And so I totally agree with checking an abdominal ultrasound to see if that ovary is there. Another thing you could potentially do is do a cycle of Clomid, not necessarily for the reproductive component, but to make that ovary big so it's easier to spot. Stimulated um, ovaries are much easier to find. Yeah, yeah, and especially if they're up higher in the abdomen, especially if you have a little bit of extra uh, padding around your abdomen, it makes it a little bit easier to see. Um, those those would be things, but yeah, keep us posted. I'm I'm kind of interested to see what they find. So let us know. Let us know what they do. Let us know what your ultrasound show. I'm I'm curious here. And ultimately, an MRI too would be another way. It's more expensive and more involved, but that would be a way to look. And sometimes too, I'll say even if they're overstimulated. The ultrasonographer, if she doesn't have experience with people who have non-communicating horns or have a missing portion of, or missing right side, basically, have, sometimes they have to be reminded, you need to look with an abdominal ultrasound up high. So just make sure somebody looks with an abdominal ultrasound for that right ovary high up in your pelvis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and sometimes taking your, hands, taking your hands and pushing them down. Uh, pushing on your belly and pushing everything kind of down towards your pelvis can help because it just shifts things lower so that you can maybe pick something up on a vaginal ultrasound that you otherwise wouldn't. Yeah. All right. Y'all want to do one more? Sure. All right. Hi, I'm so glad I'd be on your podcast. I'm 36 with primary unexplained infertility. Been trying to conceive since May 2021. AMH 4.52. HSG shows blocked left tube. 
Regular periods, light, medium, only last three days. Two unsuccessful IUIs with Clomid, Avadrel, Estradiol, and Prometrium. Lining has been on the thinner side. Um, 5.7 multi-layered with follicles measuring 22, 18, 16, 12, 11, 11. Le- but left side was dominant this time. My husband's sperm last IUI was 7.48 total modal after wash. Going to try letrozole and doing acupuncture and supplements. Doctor said no need for saline ultrasound. I have IVF coverage next July. Any advice on increasing my IUI chances? Ooh, that is a lot of information. I was like trying to write really fast. I don't know that very I got it all. targeted information. Like she's given us very all the stuff good. we need. Very precise. Yeah. yeah. Um, I like the idea of switching to letrozole. Sometimes Clomid has a negative impact on lining. So that's, I would, I would agree with that. And you can't control which side those... Um, eggs grow on. And so, you know, noting that the left side is blocked is important and it's not an every other month thing, um, as I'm sure you've seen if you've done two by now. Um, and so I would say keep keep going. The right side can potentially pick up a left follicle. Doesn't happen as often. It kind of depends what else is going on in your pelvis, which you're not going to easily be able to pick up from the testing that we have available to us short of surgery, which I would not really advocate at this stage of the game. Um, but you know, I would still, I would still keep doing it, even if you have them on the left side, because that right, right tube can sometimes come over and be very helpful in picking them up. My main concern is the sperm count. Sperm count, and, yeah, that's what I was going to say. And so, if you're really trying to avoid IVF, what I often do in my practice is doing back to back IUIs, and what I mean by that is we would trigger on one day, and instead of just waiting the 36 hours, we would trigger. The next day I would do an IUI and the next day I'd do an IUI so that you have two episodes that combined, you're more likely to have over 10 million total modal sperm um, based on kind of the parameters that you've had previously. So I I tend to do that where where I am. I don't, I can't freeze sperm and get it to myself very easily because we're about 40 minutes away from the lab. And besides the fact that if you have a lower sperm count, you're going to lose a lot of sperm in the freezing and thawing process. And so I found back-to-back IUI in this type of situation um, pretty darn helpful. Yeah, it can't hurt. I will say we don't really do that at Nashville very often. Um, we do have the capability to freeze and all that, but generally we don't do that. But I would, would say I would really make sure that you guys really abstain and do that every other day, or at least make sure there's at least two days between ejaculations just to make sure that you optimize everything. I think if your husband's well hydrated, that may help a little bit may give him more volume. Um, and also too, I think sometimes if guys collect in stressful places like in the office or something, sometimes their volume doesn't appear to be quite as good. So if you could, you know, uh, you know, collect at home and get it there within the reasonable amount of time, or I've even had patients in Nashville that have rented a room <laughs> and had collected in a hotel room where he's more comfortable and less stressed and just anything that can give him more volume overall will have to- more total sperm in the ejaculate. For the love of God, don't do it in the parking lot and get arrested. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, yeah. And we're very serious about that because we've all had people that we found <laughs> out have done that. So there's no need. There's lots of there's other no things you can safely and legally do this. Yes. Yes. All right. So topic of today is alphabet soup. And as as is befitting, you know, this time of winter when soup is the uh, <laughs> primary MO for quick meals, um, fertility is is an alphabet soup. And so for people who've been in this world for a long time, like the three of us, we spit off letters like it's our job because it's our job. Um, and, and there's some of our things that actually have multiple letters that mean the same thing. Yeah. 
Yes, yes. And so there's the combinations that are the same. And so what we're going to do today um, in in this episode is just go through a lot of the letters that we're talking about so that if you just need a quick glossary of what your doctor is potentially talking about, and, and most docs try and be really good in saying what what each of these things mean, but there is a lot of similarity in how these letters are put together. Sometimes it's the exact same letters, just a slightly different order. And so um so this is they can be very different things then (laughs) yeah I I don't know about you guys but sometimes too I don't mean to do it but on when I'm you know bobbing around and talking about IVF and then I talk about PGT and AMH and you know I start throwing these things around and the patients are like looking at me like what are you talking about I'm like oh I'm sorry sometimes we get lost in our you know three letter words that we say all the time So let's divide this up into a couple of categories. So first category, what are the letters that we talk about when someone is initially in our office and we're just talking about all the diagnostic stuff? So we're not talking about treatment at all, just the all the letters that you throw out during that initial visit, maybe the follow-up visit when you're discussing, okay, this is what you had done and this is what it means. So Abby, what is your favorite set of letters to talk about? AMH is my favorite letter, my, are, are my favorite letters. Um, that stands for anti-mullerian hormone. And that's really the hormone that gives us the best idea of how good a woman's ovarian reserve is. Um, high numbers are good. It's one of the few tests where we like to see high numbers. So the higher the number, in a sense, the better. It means that you have more eggs. Okay. And Susan, let's stick with the ovarian theme. What else do you like looking at? So I also, I'm going to break the rule and add some numbers in here. So um, the FSH and E2 or follicle stimulating hormone and estradiol, which is the E2. Um, FSH is the hormone the brain produces that tells the ovaries what to do. Estradiol is the hormone the ovaries produce that talks to the brain. And it's important that we get those together because it's a feedback loop. and so. If for some reason at the time that level is drawn, your ovary is producing more estrogen than what we think it should be at baseline, then we know that we can't really trust what's happening in the brain. It can also give us a little idea that, um, especially in ladies who are a little bit older, usually in their late 30s, early 40s, that sometimes you have very early follicular recruitment and it can be showing us that that may be happening in some of your cycles. All right. All right. So we've got AMH, FSH, and E2. Abby, are there any other egg testing um, letters that you check later on in the cycle that show whether or not ovulation has occurred? So progesterone, or we also know for know it as P4. So typically once the egg is released from that sac, which becomes the, the corpus luteum, the purpose of that sac after the egg is released it is to produce progesterone and to maintain the pregnancy. And hopefully once you get pregnant, it will continue to be released all the way up until the placenta takes over about 12 weeks. Okay. And, and me, 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 me. <laughs> Still on the ovaries. Um, we also have the AFC or antral follicle count oh, yes. where, we're, where we're looking at um, kind of the, the antral follicles are the very small follicles that are kind of baseline in your ovaries. And that count gives us an idea about quantity and how well you might respond to certain types of stimulations and and things like that. But an antral follicle count is very important. Another thing, one thing that I see often in my in my practice is somebody may have been to their OB-GYN and they've had a 
ultrasound already. And then they come in to see us and they're like, do I really have to do this again? Because I just had one. Well, unfortunately, very, very rarely will you ever get an antral follicle count performed anywhere except for a reproductive endocrinologist's office. And it's a very important part of our evaluation. So, you know, it's just something to kind of be aware of that when we repeat that ultrasound, we are actually looking at some very specific things. Um, and that's one of them that that would not have been done pretty much anywhere else. Did you mention LH, Susan? Nope, not yet. <laughs> okay. Okay. So LH is another one. Um, it's a hormone produced produced from the pituitary. And it's when we talk about the trigger shot, luteinizing hormone is really the hormone that we're trying to mimic with that trigger shot. We're trying to get you to release an egg. Usually we're trying to get you to release it at the appropriate time. So that, for example, we know when to do an intrauterine insemination with your husband's sperm or so that when you know, you know when to have timed intercourse. Another time LH is important is if you're doing IVF and you are doing a Lupron trigger, um, which is essentially a medicine that's going to make your brain produce LH to mature your eggs. Um, that hormone level level is very important for us to draw because sometimes some people's little pituitaries don't act exactly the way we expect yeah, them to. That's not good and news. we don't <laughs> and we don't want to be surprised when we go in for egg retrieval. All right. So that's a lot of the really good egg testing, the monitoring that we do there. How about tube testing, Abby? What are the letters that we use for the different types of tube tests? So there's a couple. HSG stands for hysterosalpingogram. That's the test that your doctor may have done or had you go to um, an outpatient diagnostic imaging center. It's typically done by a radiologist, although at times in our practice, we've done them as well. But it's basically where the doctor puts radioopaque dye through your uterus and hopefully sees that you have a normal cavity and normal fallopian tubes. The other test that some people do in some offices is also known as a saline sonogram or SIS is the way we abbreviate it. It's a test, again, where we're looking at the tubes and looking at the cavity of the uterus, um, but it's done in a different setting. It's typically done in our office by radio or by ultrasonographer or one of our nurse practitioners and sometimes one of the doctors. We put water up inside the cavity. We're able to see air bubbles oftentimes go through the tubes that tell us that the tubes are open as well. The other set of letters that can apply to that one are SHG, uh, um, sonohistogram, as opposed to mm -hmm. hysterosalpingogram. So you've got your HSG, which is for the tubes, and your SHG, which is for the uterus, depending on what your office uses. Or uh, SIS is what we call it. Or the SIS <laughs> is very common in other offices, and they all mean... The same thing, but or basically just the, the same, same The same, but different things. So one thing I did want to mention, because some of us use a little bit different terminology, but realize that a sonogram and an ultrasound are the same thing. So yeah. that's another thing we often hear from our patients. They're like, I are, am I having a sonogram or an ultrasound? Yes. <laughs> it's, it's the yes. same term. And sometimes when you're looking at uh, reports in particular, we like, we don't tend to um, say this nearly as much, but you will often see it in the written material. U.S. is ultrasound. Mm -hmm. TV-U.S. is transvaginal ultrasound. T-A-U.S. is a transabdominal ultrasound. So mm -hmm. that's, you won't usually hear that referenced in verbal, you know, in any verbal way, you but you see will it in see your it notes. written down. You'll see in the notes and you'll see it like if somebody's writing down, okay, you need to go for an ultrasound. Sometimes they'll write down T-V-U.S. or U.S. And um, I know that in, in our office, you know, E2P4US is a very common set of instructions and patients are like, why are you talking about the United States with respect to my labs? Like, this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and it's, it's our shorthand. Okay. So with respect to male testing, what's the common abbreviation for the male testing that we all use? SA. You got it. 
semen analysis. All right. And I don't think there's any other major male abbreviations. DFI, which I know not all of us do, but DFI stands for DNA Fragmentation Index. Um, And so there, there are some tests that will test to see if there is more fragmentation in the DNA of the sperm if your physician does that testing and acts on that type of testing. And we don't all agree on that one. So <laughs> that one's that one's an evolution right now. There's there's a few new tests that we're trying to see how that works. Okay. So that's the the majority of the alphabet soup that people go through in the initial testing phases. And this is kind of the general pretty much everybody gets some version of these. Now, there's the other things that we will sometimes order that is not that aren't appropriate for absolutely everybody. So some of the imaging in particular falls into this range. So Abby, with your deep love of anomalies coming from the program in Kentucky, what do you use when you really are worried about? And I only say that because I remember oh. thinking that you guys, you guys had a really an amazing anomaly program because I was looking at that when I was in training. Um, but what if you're really worried about a set of uterine anomalies that can extend elsewhere, what is the imaging that you order? So usually MRI, because it's the best way to look at soft tissues and radiologists are pretty good at being able to really diagnose any like division in the uterus or complete separation or partial separation or whatever. So usually an MRI is the thing that we choose. Okay. And then um, some of the blood panels that we do that we are commonly referring to um, that patients kind of get lost also in the alphabet soup. So Susan, if you're if you're doing an infection panel, for example, what are the set of letters that come out most often that that we don't think about as physicians that patients kind of go like, what the hell are you talking about? Right. When we're talking about infections and um, the things that we test for generally in our office are obviously HIV. Um, we will do an RPR, which is a screening test for syphilis. We will also test for Hep B, which is for Hepatitis B, and Hep C, which is Hepatitis C. Um, let's see. Um, if you ever see us, um, if you might have a history of chlamydia or something like that, or having that test, we often abbreviate that as CT. Anything else I'm forgetting? Gonorrhea is GC. GC, yes. Yeah. GC chlamydia is very mm-hmm. common. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And then Abby, what are some of the general um, endocrine type things that we are looking at usually on our general panels when someone first comes to see us? So like a TSH and a T4, check your thyroid to kind of make sure that your thyroid is functioning normally. Um, the other ones that we look at, or the other one that we look at sometimes is prolactin, um, just to make sure that, you know, you're not secreting too much of that. It's normal when you're pregnant, but it's not normal. And, and after you deliver, when you breastfeed, but it shouldn't, we shouldn't see that in somebody that's trying to get pregnant. And we often abbreviate that as PRL. Mm-hmm. And then um, an A1C is very commonly obtained. That's looking for diabetes. Mm-hmm. And that's checking to see what the measure of your sugar has been over the past couple of months, if it's been high or low. Mm-hmm. Um, high is really what we care about here. Nobody's going to argue with somebody whose sugars are low. <laughs> we're like, oh, good. You're doing what you should be doing. Um, and then CBC is a really common one that is looking at your H&H. So CBC is a <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible, Carrie. What? <laughs> like, that's terrible. Yeah. Right. Like we're talking um, in shorthand. So CBC is a complete blood count, blood count 
H&H is hemoglobin and hematocrit. And all of those travel together. We're really just looking to see, are you anemic? Is your white blood cell or WBC count high, which those are infection-fighting cells. So we pay attention if those are particularly high or low. And then um, platelets or uh, uh, PLT. PLT. Um, those are That's starting to get more esoteric. We don't usually find problems with those in fertility patients. But the H&H is pretty common. A lot of women have anemia. Yeah. And some people, we look at the CMP. I don't know if you guys call it the same thing, but mm-hmm. complete mm-hmm. metabolic panel looks yeah. at glucose. Or a BMP and, with slightly BMP, different... Yeah. Yeah. yeah, basic metabolic panel. Um, it looks at glucose and renal function and that sort of thing. Okay. All right. Do you think have, we left out any letters? I, I have something. Um, <laughs> we, when we're trying to find out what your blood type or your partner's blood type is, mm-hmm. we will check ABO, which is checking whether you're A, B, O, AB, any of those. And we'll also look at your RH, which stands for rhesus factor. And this is the thing that is either positive or negative. And the reason why that's important is that if the female is RH negative and the source of the sperm is RH positive, um, there's a chance that there can be some little intermingling that happens in blood that could actually cause problems later on, either in pregnancies or if you needed blood yourself. And so... Some of y'all may have heard about something called a Rogam injection, which is often given if you have early bleeding in pregnancy, or even if you're having a completely normal pregnancy and you have a negative blood type, you'll get it about halfway through pregnancy. Once you deliver, they'll test baby's blood type. If baby's blood type was positive, you'll get it again at that point. I have a lot of patients, especially recently, that they're they're very, very worried that they have gotten this Rogam injection. And something. <laughs> This is something that like we do all the time. And, yeah. and just because you got the rogam doesn't mean anything's wrong. We're actually just mm-hmm. working to prevent that something could be wrong earlier. And like I said, even if you're not planning on having babies in the future, if for some reason you needed a blood transfusion, you were in a surgery and needed yeah. blood or you were in a car accident or something like this, it, it, it helps you have more options for blood products. Mm-hmm. Um, and being RH positive as a partner and RH negative as a patient um, who is going to carry the pregnancy is typically not something to really spend a lot of time worrying about. Don't sweat it. This is just more information. So this is not a typically a cause for concern um, yeah. because we give those Rogam injections. If we didn't, then yes, it's a huge cause for concern. But because that is standard of care, don't, don't lose a whole lot of sleep over that one. Exactly. One other screening test, I don't know if we were getting to this yet or not, but HCG, that's really an important screening test too. <laughs> The pregnancy that test. Is. That Even is. We'll hit, hit treatment more often. Although it can be really helpful when someone does not get regular cycles, particularly in mm-hmm. PCOS type patients, mm-hmm. where they just have no idea where they are in their cycle because it comes whenever the hell it wants to. And <laughs> checking an HCG is always prime in that because those patients can get pregnant on their own. And we don't want to start messing with someone when they're already pregnant. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, there's... What is one diagnostic test if you have a woman who comes in who says, I have a female partner or I don't have a male partner and I'm planning on using donor sperm? What is the additional infectious antibody testing that mm. we order on those patients? And um Susan, not YMCA, but <laughs> DM- DMV. <laughs> <laughs> so what's CMV? So CMV stands for cytomegalovirus. It essentially is a fancy cold virus. And um, there is a theoretical risk 
that if you are CMV negative and you use CMV positive sperm, that you could contract CMV in early pregnancy, which could lead to birth defects. So it is often, but not always recommended that if you are CMV negative to use CMV negative sperm. Also too, if you're going to use um, donor eggs or donor embryos, there's another one called HTLV, which Carrie says it's hot in Las Vegas, but I don't, I don't know if that's what it really stands for or not, but <laughs> actually I'll be honest right off the top of my head. I'm trying to remember what it does stand for, but it doesn't stand for hot in Las Vegas, but <laughs> it's what human T cell oh, lymphocytic. Uh, lymph- lymphocytic virus. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. yeah. There you go. HTLV. Very good. Um, Okay, so let's talk about treatment. So your patient comes in and let's say she is a candidate for absolutely everything because her testing is is absolutely perfect in every respect, um, which no, you cannot ace fertility testing. I see all of you type A patients out there. The goal is not to ace fertility testing here, okay? Um, but what type of treatments, specifically letters, are we talking to her about at this stage? It really well, let me talk about... IUI, right off the top, intrauterine insemination, where we take the sperm and put it up inside the uterine cavity at the right time in a woman's cycle. And what is the other um, type of insemination that people sometimes do before they get to the fertility office, particularly for people who are using donor sperm at home? So ICI, intracervical insemination. And so that's where it basically mimics, you know, intercourse where the sperm is deposited in the vagina. Mm -hmm. Up, Up high, close to the cervix. Okay. And then what if someone needs bigger guns? Bigger guns? We're those? talking IVF, in vitro fertilization. <laughs> okay. And what about um, combining the sperm with the eggs? What are those letters? ICSI, intracytoplasmic sperm injection. So we take one single sperm, or embryologists do, and put it inside the egg to bring about fertilization. Okay. And when we're talking about the medications of IVF, what are some of the common things that we uh, that we refer to in those medications? Usually when we're talking about general overall class of medications, these are not necessarily the brand names, but the we're going to give you, you know, this type of medication to mimic what's going on in your body. What are those letters? Similar to what we've already talked about. FSH and LH. Yeah. Good when we can read Carrie's mind. <laughs> and, I know I was going and HMG, human menopausal gonadotropin is another type of fertility, me- older fertility medicine that we used to give, but we still give it now as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and HCG. Then, Sometimes we use HCG as a yeah, trigger shot that's in right. both IUI as well as in IVF. And sometimes we just give it along with the FSH to stimulate patients. That mm-hmm. is true. Particularly when there's a shortage of medication that stretches across the entire country. <laughs> which which flips... we just experienced and some of us had never done that before. <laughs> it was all of the, wait a minute, I have to add in this and I have to subtract this and this these this no longer applies and I need to do this instead. Yeah, that that was a whole lot of fun. It seems to work the same. It's just, it's a lot more gymnastics trying to get there. It is. Um, okay, so when you're talking about meds, you've got your FSH analogs, um, and your HMG, and then you've got your HCG trigger shots. And then sometimes people talk about other other types of trigger shots and other types of way that we manipulate um, ovulation, whether it's enhancing it or preventing it. So what are the big kind of alphabet soups related to that? Enhancing ovulation. Think Lupron triggers. What's the class? GNRH agonist. Yeah. Or antagonist. Yeah. So sometimes I get a lot of people who say, 
um, they they start throwing out the phrase GNRH, and they don't always add on the modifier to that, which and, is really and the helpful. modifier is the part that actually matters. Yeah, <laughs> the modifier is the part. Trying like, to think because I just think of agonists and the antagonists instead of yeah. thinking of the GNRH. So yeah. yes, yes. So a lot of my a lot of my patients who are very well read um, will say, "Oh, are you going to give me GNRH?" And I'm like. I need the last word because a GNRH agonist um, is something that can, depending on how you use it, either cause ovulation or can prevent it, depending on the, the mechanism by way you give it. If you are giving it a little bit for a long period of time or a lot in a very short period of time, or you're looking at the GNRH antagonists, which are going to prevent ovulation from occurring before you want it. And then, of course, like we already talked about, you've got HCG as the as a trigger form, mm-hmm. which can help induce ovulation as well. So, so all of those overlap. There are multiple ways that you can give those medications um, that are all very useful, but it's highly dependent on what you give, when you give it, and how long you give it for. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's say that somebody is doing IVF and they are now in the phase where eggs are out, sperm is out, they have done ICSI and the the embryos are growing, what are the letters that can come after embryos are starting to form and we're doing additional testing on them? We're doing PGT? Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so pre-implantation genetic testing. Um, And that's where we take a few of the cells that are going to become the placenta and we'll later cryopreserve the embryo and send those cells off for us to do further testing on the embryo. Now, there's usually letters after PGT, and those letters afterwards indicate what type of testing you're doing. So the most common PGT that is performed is PGT-A. A is for aneuploidy. Aneuploidy is a fancy word for abnormal number of chromosomes. So that's the test to see if we have embryos that are chromosomally normal. And this is also the test that we can know the gender of your embryo um, if you so desire. Um, In addition to that, we have PGTM. And PGTM is for um, people who have genetic things that are in their own genome or both them and their partner or the source of sperm um, where they match up in recessive. So we're helping prevent diseases like cystic fibrosis, spina muscular atrophy, um, Huntington's disease. Um, there, there's a host, there, there's, there's literally hundreds and thousands of things we could do this for. It's not something that we test for every, you know, disease out there. We have to know that you and your partner are actually carriers. Um, we also have PGTSR, which stands for structural rearrangement. And that's when um, this is most common in um, people who have recurrent pregnancy loss, where um, part of their chromosomes are a little bit in the wrong place. And so it makes it a little harder for them to make chromosomally normal embryos. So it's it's a test to see, do we have balanced embryos that can lead to a viable pregnancy? And then we also have a new type of PGT that has um, started coming onto the market called PGTP. Um, and this actually looks at some of the genes within the embryo and can give us some future prognostic data on the health of that eventual child and adult. And so that's sometimes used to help rank embryos. 
And especially if you may have family histories of certain things like early heart disease, melanoma, there, there's there's a host of um, specific disease things um, that, that they're looking for that are really polygenetic. So there's lots of factors that go into this. All right. If someone can't either carry their own pregnancy or if someone has to use a donor for the eggs, what are those, what are the sets of abbreviations that go along with that process? So what about someone who can't carry their own pregnancy and needs somebody else? They get a GC or gestational carrier to carry their pregnancy. Okay. And then Susan, if someone is using someone else's eggs, what's our common uh, abbreviation for that person? Usually in the charts written down, um, less less often that we are saying saying this out loud, but is very commonly in the the charts. Um, Like OD, like oocyte donor? Yes. Okay. And then what testing does everybody have to go through, through what major federal agency? FDA FDA testing. FDA. FDA. We just had an FDA inspection this past week, as a matter of fact. We did too. My staff is delighted that that is done. They are too. Yeah, my staff. And they actually announced it this time as a side note, which is kind of funny. Usually they just knock on our door and don't announce it. And so... We did great. And so we always do. So, but it's always yeah. makes everybody nervous when the FDA shows up knocking at your door to inspect yeah, your records. Make the, sure the regulatory the agencies is that's a whole other episode, all of itself <laughs> letters it in is. alphabet soup. So, okay. Any other major sets of letters? I mean, we've got, I've been tracking as we've been going along to make sure we miss, we hit all of the big ones and we've hit over 40 in the past wow. 20, um, 30 minutes or so. So any other major ones? We talk about IPs or intended parents. I don't know if that's a common one yep. that you guys use, but intended parents, um, you know, for a gestational carrier. Yeah. Um, and then you've got some of the notation ones that sometimes people are, uh, more shock to learn about. So one is RPL, which is recurrent pregnancy loss for people who've had mm-hmm. multiple miscarriages. And then there's a couple differentiations for this, but probably the one that gets people most upset if they don't realize it is SAB. Mm-hmm. That's spontaneous abortion. That refers to a miscarriage. That does not imply anything beyond just you were pregnant and it stopped of its own accord. And so I mm-hmm. sometimes have people who uh, in the past have gotten upset about that notation, which is they You'll think see it's that a, on billing, especially because yeah, abortion yeah. is the medical term for miscarriage. And then there's spontaneous yeah. and incomplete and there's different words we put in front of it. And so in, you know, colloquial vernacular, it obviously means usually intentional termination, but really it just means a pregnancy that did not continue to develop. Mm-hmm. There's also a diagnosis called PCOS or polycystic ovary syndrome, which we've had many episodes about um, for people that have irregular cycles, basically. Mm-hmm. And HA or FSA, HA or FHA. So functional hypothalamic amenorrhea or hypothalamic amenorrhea. People whose hypothalamus just is not, not here for doing work and they don't get periods. I think we can just keep going on and on with these. It's amazing. (laughs) We really could. Like I, (laughs) I have a a textbook in my, um, you know, my shelves next to me, and I'm like, oh, I should pull that out and look at it. And like, no, I shouldn't. Otherwise, it's going to be a two-hour episode. Um, Can create a reference. I think this was a great summary of all the letters we throw out there and use, and you know, for people who are especially starting their journey, I think this can help make it not quite as scary. Yeah, for sure. 
All right. Well, to our audience, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to tune in next week for more. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review in Apple Podcasts. We would love to hear from you. We're on Instagram, we're on Facebook, we're on YouTube. So hop on by, leave us a like, a follow and say hello. You can also visit us on fertility.sensensor.com to submit specific questions. All questions will be answered on the podcast for our Ask the Doc segment. We also love to hear episode, episode ideas. So be sure and leave us your thoughts. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right, we'll see you soon. Bye. This podcast is also brought to you by Fertility Pharmacy of America. Fertility Pharmacy of America is a fertility dedicated pharmacy that partners with physicians across the country in order to provide patients with a more personalized pharmacy experience. Pride ourselves on ensuring that every prescription is accurate, delivered in a timely manner, and most importantly, affordable for all patients. A team of trained pharmacists, technicians, and customer service representatives will be with you every step of the way, providing you with knowledge and exceptional quality care for all of your fertility medication needs. More than just a specialty pharmacy, they're a committed partner during your fertility journey. Fertility Pharmacy of America, making miracles happen every day. Please text or call us at 844-449-8767 and reference Fertility Docs Uncensored.